Matthew, if you turn to Matthew's gospel, very simple. Every sermon has a big idea, at least for me it does. You've got to be able to say your, sentence, your sermon in one sentence. Mine is, Jesus was serious about discipleship. Um, I would challenge you, I'm, I try to read through the Gospels all the time. No matter what else I'm doing, uh, I think the most important thing you could be in life and do was to try to be like Jesus and Beth hit it on the head. And I think you can't do that most of all without the Gospels. Um, you can read them through four times completely in a year with a little bit left over. And I would encourage you to do every one of those. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this way, but I would, next time you read through the Gospels, read it with this slant, that the Gospels are discipleship manuals. Read it that way. And, and none better as an example than Matthew because the, the word disciple is used 78 times other than the Gospel of John more than any other book. In fact, the word disciple is only used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. It's not used outside of that in the New Testament um, because it was absolutely crucial to Jesus' ministry and to the beginning of the early church. And I still believe it's just as crucial to our lives as believers today. Um, the theme is what begins Jesus' public ministry, and that's why I had you turn there. 4 9 Jesus uses discipleship in this way. When he calls people, he says, follow me. That phrase, we're going to look at each one in an exercise at the end of our message at application. It's used six times in Matthew's gospel, different people each time, and we're going to apply that to our lives at the end, and you'll see how. But it's a theme that begins Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4, verse 19, when he calls Peter and his brother Simon, I mean, uh, Andrew, and then James and John, he says, follow me until the very end of the book, which is kind of like a conceptual bracket because at the end, the very last words of Jesus' public ministry, actually in this world, he says, go into all the world and what? Make disciples. So from the very beginning to the very end and a bunch of times in between in Matthew's gospel, it is all about discipleship. Thus, big idea, Jesus is really serious about discipleship. And thus, the question for you tonight is simple, right? Are you? Are you and I, as individuals, are we as a church, are we as serious about discipleship as Jesus was? Um, to begin in Matthew's, God, here's what we're going to do. So this is a Bible study, mainly tonight. And I'm going to teach you a method maybe that you could use when you study. So we're going to go... I always do this when I study the Bible. Start this way and do this. Start really wide and funnel down right to the passage that I'm in. I teach Pastor Lawrence that the best applications come from the right interpretations. And you, if you don't know what your text is about and why it was put where it was, then you're going to get some sh shoddy applications that really aren't what God wants you to know. So we're going to help you learn that tonight and use... Matthew's gospel in particular, one little paragraph in chapter 4 toward the end of that chapter and about discipleship. So let's look at it together. We've already seen the big bracket. Discipleship begins and ends the entire book. Let's get a little bit more narrow than that. James and John, I should, sorry, John and Jesus are the main two figures when Jesus starts his ministry. And here's the thing, and this is where our discussion on repentance comes in is they both 
echo one another almost virtually verbatim. And what the kingdom is about that they're preaching and what you have to do to get into it. Let me show you the exact words that they said because they are almost identical other than word order. They both were referred to, Gachin's first. Uh, Matthew 3, 2 says, this is John the Baptist. He says, repent. Now he's going to give you the reason and what it means. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? Now, this is a Bible study, so draw lines, circle things, make notes, whatever you got to do. Go over to 417 now. We're going to make some conclusions based on what we've read. 417, this is Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, identical, ready? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you looked at the original language, the only thing that's different is where the word at hand, which means near, is whether John says it at the beginning of a sentence, Jesus says it at the end. That is the only difference. And both ways of doing it is emphatic. I mean, they're stressing it. They're just doing it different ways. At least Matthew did when he wrote it, right? So both of them are saying identical statements that you need to repent. Repent is used seven times in Gospels, Matthew's Gospel and a whole bunch of other times with other kinds of words, which we won't have time to go into tonight. So the definition of it is, and I'm going to tell you how it's true, but just take my word for it for a second. Ready? If you want a definition, here's what it means. Normally people would say, commonly, it's a change of mind. And I would say, yes, but not enough. And I'm going to show you that Repentance in the Gospels, which is mainly used, is about changing your mind and more than that, changing your whole lifestyle. It changes on the inside, your mind, your heart, but also the change becomes something that is recognizable and observable on the outside. It's not just a change in your thinking. It is a change in your living or you're doing. And both are absolutely necessary. Let me show you an example from the text that we're in that John the baptizer does. Ready? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Pharisees or the religious leaders come up, same chapter, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, and Jesus calls them the same thing later in the same gospel, just a little later. So they're very much alike. Now imagine, that wouldn't be very popular. You probably wouldn't win friends and influence people um, if you called them brood of vipers. Right? That, that's probably not complimentary, I don't think. But he says brood of vipers, snakes, spawn of Satan, whatever you want to call that. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now watch what he says. He doesn't just tell them to repent. What does he say? Bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. And don't presume, watch, don't presume that your theology, your understanding of the Old Testament, your Jewish heritage is going to save you. <laughs> That's strong medicine, right? So don't think your religiosity, that you know the Bible really well, and that you grew up in a Christian home, let's say it that way, 21st century, he says that doesn't mean anything to God. He can raise up stones to replace all the Jewish people if he wanted to. So he says, don't do that. Here's what you know. Now, here's a great question. How would I know, Pastor Walker, if I repented? 
He says, bear fruit. Bear fruit, right? To keeping with repentance. So here's what he says. If you've really changed your mind and your heart, then it will change your life because the repentance on the inside has to be visible on the outside. And here's the key. If this outside isn't true, the inside isn't true. (laughs) So just saying I repent doesn't mean it. Great book if you want to read it. Now, I'm going to give you a little commercial. Ready? I'm a big fan of the Puritans. And although they're a few hundred years old, some, some of the best authors in the world are dead. If you didn't know that. Um, Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, and all their books, well, most of their books, are fairly small. Like little, they have what's called a series put out called Puritan Paperbacks. And they're very, like, 100 pages, and the pages are like this, they're not big. But Thomas Watson wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. It is worth every bit of it. And you can get it off of Amazon for $4.95, so you're not going to, you know, lose a lot of sleep over the money you're going to spend. Um, and they have a series of about 25 of them if you collect them all. If you want to start off and say, ah, that's Pastor Walker, you may like that. I may not. I've got them all. So I will give mine to you to use for $4.95. No. I'll give mine to you, and you can use it. Now, most of mine are all underlined, and I I do all my books that way. So you'll have to see on my notes if you read mine. But it's well worth it. But in it, he gives a huge discourse on counterfeit repentance and how you can know that yours is real. And that part alone is fantastic. Um, And John the baptizer would say, you want to know how you know? You bear fruit. Show me your changed life, and I'll believe you have changed your mind. That would be John the baptizer if he could say it in our vernacular today. Now, the next part of the passage, real quick, let me move on. Why does Jesus get baptized? Has anyone ever asked you, have you ever tried to think that out? Why did he get baptized? Because John says, I'm getting, you need to come and be baptized because you need to repent. Now the question is, does Jesus need to repent? No. But he comes, and John's a little bewildered, and he says, listen, uh, you should be baptizing me. Not the other way around. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And he says, oh, let it go for now because it is befitting. In other words, acceptable right now, Jesus says. And here's why. Jesus didn't come because he needed to repent, but because he demonstrates what it looks like when you have. In other words, he's a model of what a repentant life would look like. He doesn't need it because he already is perfect. But if you want to look at someone, if someone who has the inside and the outside perfectly matched up right, like a repentant person should have, Jesus says, let me show you by identifying with people who are baptized and repented, let me identify with them and show them when they get out of the water of baptism what their life should become. Just look at me. So Jesus does that. He, he says, repent. And then we're going to come to our passage. And I want to now get your pens out. Here we go. We're going to do a little concentrated study together. And I want to put some things together to show you how you could do it. All right, between 3, 2, remember, John the baptizer, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. 4, 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. I want to build it up so you understand when we get to our little paragraph how important it is. And, and in the ESV, and I think in New King James and otherwise, I think in a lot of versions, that there is a series of the exact same word. It's English and Greek, both same. And it builds up because it's going to be a sequence of events. And it's going to build up to our main verse, Jesus' statement, repent. Let me put them to you. Ready? Look at the Bible, 3, 5. Matthew 3, 5. Circle it, the first word, then. Okay? 
Then means this has happened, one through four, and now the next thing to happen is verse five. Okay, that's not hard to figure out. 3.13, circle that one. He says, then Jesus came from Galilee. So we're talking about literary units marked off by a new event, right? So then 3.5, circle the next one, 3.13, and then look at 4.1. Next thing on the agenda and chronology for Matthew is Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted. 4.1, then Jesus was led up into the wilderness. 4.5, then the devil took him up into a holy city. Ready? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Verse 11, then the devil left him. So you've got all these markers between our two identical Jesus and John statements, 3, 2, and 4, 17. And what we're building up to is all these events pointing up to, so here's my point. They're all connected. This is not a bunch of disjointed stories that Matthew just threw in randomly, and that's going to be important. He's building on the brackets of John saying and Jesus is saying about repenting. And in between them, all these events are connected, leading up to the most important one, which happens to be the seventh one in the list. And that is our verse 17 of chapter 4. Look at it. From that time, Jesus been, and from that time is the word, not just then, but one little Greek word in front of it, from then. We would say today, from then on out. And that's the only little difference between them, and it's for a reason, because this is the climax of all that the sequence of events marked off by then are pointing to it. Let me give you another one. Write it down and, and, and study it for yourself. The little phrase, from that time, it's two words in Greek, from then, from then on, is only used three times in Matthew's gospel. The first one is 4.17. The second one is Matthew 16.24. You know it. Jesus says, and from that time, I'm sorry, 16.21. From that time, Jesus began to tell his disciples about how he had to go to Jerusalem and that he would be beaten and that he would be suffered and that he would be crucified. The last one is chapter 26 and verse 16. And it says, from that time, Judas and the religious leaders conspired together to kill Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because that little phrase, every single time it's used, three in Matthew, is a great turning point marker. In other words, those three times it's used, a great shift in the direction of Matthew's gospel happens. The first one, Jesus is going from private life to public ministry. And from that time on, he begins to preach the message of the kingdom. The second one is now he's going to stress to his disciples that if you follow me, you have to die to yourself and take up your cross because I'm going to be crucified. You're going to be crucified in that same sense, metaphorically. And the last one is no longer are they just mad at Jesus. The third use is, and now they're going to kill him. And that's what the whole rest of the gospel is about, Jesus being crucified and raised again. So what have we learned by looking at those little connections, that when we get to this 417 and Jesus' words like John, repent for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is telling us that what he's saying is a major turning point that we can't miss. That what he's saying is not just a little phrase that you can run right by. No, this is the hinge that he begins his entire ministry on. But what did we say at the beginning? The beginning we said this, Jesus is 
serious about discipleship. And he is. Because, watch, look, ready? This is so obvious, but you'll miss it. 417 says, hinge point. This is absolutely crucial about the summary about what I'm preaching. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, and then the next paragraph. Now, here's the really $65,000 question. Ready? Why is verses 18 through 22 follow verse 17? Not because that's how numbers work. Why? Why did Matthew put this narrative sequence together where this climax between these two statements, why did he put 17 before 18 through 22? Because 18 through 22 is what we've been saying tonight. It's Jesus calling people to be disciples. Follow me, Peter, Andrew, James, John. Why would he introduce a section on discipleship with the call to repentance? The answer, because that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is a continual life of repenting so that you can be like Jesus. So watch. So now we know when Jesus says and doesn't tell us what it means, you follow me, he's telling you're going to have to repent. That you really don't follow Moses. You don't really follow the Sadducees or the Pharisees. You follow me. Change your mind about what God is like. Change your mind about what it means to be in the kingdom. Because you know they've got that all backwards. They think the kingdom is military. And they think that they're going to vanquish the Romans. They think that it's going to be, and he's going to tell them this. Totally change your mind about how to live for God. Totally change your mind about what it means to be in the kingdom, live in the kingdom. And there's no shocker, right, that after this little vignette in 18 through 22 about follow me, what do you think follows? Well, the Sermon on the Mount, three whole chapters. Why do you think it's there? Because now he's going to tell you in a little microcosm, see, my little disciples are going to live out for you what it means to repent, to change your mind and follow me at the sin of your life. And now he's going to say, let me preach my biggest message, three chapters, and I want to in detail lay out for you what that would really look like. So can we go back and ask the question again? What does it look like? How would you know that you've truly repented? Ready? It would look like following Jesus. You want to get some real detail now? It would look like Matthew 5 through 7. That's what it would look like. Not because we're perfect at any of it, but it would look like that. It would look like the pattern of your life is going in that direction. That's what Jesus would say. He would say repentance is not just a negative feeling or remorse about your past sins, although it is. He would say it is a positive action in my life. And it changes my mind and it changes my conduct. And it's relational just about every possible way. So let me close tonight. We're going to do a little bit more with this text. And then we're going to apply it pretty relevantly. Two ways in our little 18 through 22 text that the direction of your life changes when you repent and follow Jesus. Ready? Two. One of it is you go toward Jesus in a way you never have before, and that is in the phrase, follow me. Let's be real clear. 
This is not the first time Jesus has met Peter and Andrew, so it's not like, oh, Jesus, wow, all you have to do is say the two words that I don't know anything about you, and I'm going to drop it all and follow you. No, because John 1.35 would indicate pretty clearly that they lived in Capernaum. He's been in Capernaum. He knows their families. He knows them really well. But in this case, he's not just calling them as friends. He's calling them as a rabbi. And you have to understand, in that day, students who wanted a rabbi would go after them, the rabbi, and seek the rabbi, and they would say, Rabbi, I would like to follow you. And then the rabbi would give them all these tests to see if they were good enough to follow him. And if you didn't follow him, if he, if he says you weren't good enough, then you would go back and do whatever your father's trade was. Thus, James and John are in a boat and it's their father's business. Because they must have tried to be somebody else's rabbi or, or to be, get a rabbi and they weren't good enough. And so they got turned down. So they went back to being fishermen and that's what Peter and Andrew were doing. But in this case, Jesus reverses what was the norm and he comes after them and he tells them, now you follow me, but there, there isn't any test. He just says, you follow me, which means, ready, for all of us, that I believe that you can follow me, not because it's in you, because it's in me. See, he takes ordinary people who are rejected and probably looked at by others as not really that great. And he contains, changed them around. But you know what it's hinged on? Repentance. And their whole life from here on out, from now to the end of this book, is Jesus is going to teach them how to turn around and change their mind and their lives about him. Even to the point where his leading disciple at one time, in, this, in 16, chapter 16, Jesus says, remember I told you, it's time that you know that I'm going to be crucified and go to Jerusalem and they're going to beat me and mock me and scourge me and crucify me. And he says in the double negative, never, never will that happen to you. And he says what to him? Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now see, that was the low part of his discipleship. That's the same little phrase that Jesus actually said to the devil in Matthew 4, 4, right? Get behind me, Satan. That's, see, he's not acting like Jesus, but the whole manual is about discipleship and following Jesus. Let me just point out one more thing. Remember two directions? The first one is when you repent and you begin to follow Jesus, you go toward him in a way that you never did before. And then once you do that, you're also going to go toward others in a way you did be never did before. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You will become disciples so that you can make disciples. They weren't ready to make disciples until Jesus had died and rose again and gave them the ability to do just that. And so his last commandment is, you have become disciples these last three years. Now I want you to spend the rest of your life making disciples. That's what the whole book is about. And how do you do that? Living a life of continually changing your mind about Jesus and who he is and what it means to be in his kingdom and to follow me. So follow me are heavy, heavy words. And part of that is, remember, it's positive and negative. When you follow Jesus and you make disciples, read verses 19, 20 through 22. Both stories, other than the names of the two brothers, are the same. They're both doing something with fishing and nets. Watch out. They both have boats in the Sea of Galilee, 
Fishing was commercial and is incredibly wealthy. They were not poor people that were barely making it. I've been to Peter's house. They've excavated it. It was a large home, a two-family home. They owned their own boats, which was not easy to do. And it seems like they may have had multiple boats. And they seem like they were good friends enough, these two brothers, that they co-opted together to make a fishing business and were probably making a pretty good living. So when Jesus says, drop everything and follow me, Peter had a wife and his mother-in-law lived with them and he had a home and he had a business and he had boats and Jesus says, drop all of that. See, it's, there's always a going closer to Jesus but also getting further away from everything you're comfortable with. And how can you do that? Because you've got to change your mind about who he is and what it means to be in his kingdom. Now, we're going to apply that to all the people left. Ready? Real quickly, turn with me to all of these. Next one on our list of people who follow Jesus or are asked to, 822. We're going to read all of them, and we're going to take about one minute on each one of them. You can do further on your own. But what we're looking for in all these final scenarios where Jesus is asked to follow people or he asked them to follow him. They all need to repent of something. Remember, because that's the foundation of discipleship. Let's see what they need to, you can figure out what they needed to repent from and see if it helps you in your life. It says in Matthew 8, 20, and Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's talking to a scribe. Another of the disciples, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. There it is. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. What do they have to, what's the scribe? Foxes have holes. Jesus doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a place to stay. He doesn't have a roof over his head. So if you're going to follow Jesus and live a life of repentance, what would you have to change your mind about if you followed him? Or the scribe would have to. What would he have to do? You're not going to have a... Comfortable life always. You, when you follow Jesus, he's not promising you, his kingdom is not about glory now, it's about glory later. It's not about, hey, I follow Jesus in the kingdom and now everything in my life is going to be fairy tale ending. No, he says, I don't have a place that foxes do, birds, I don't. And then he tells the other guy, what does he say? 8.22, he says, hey, let me go home and bury my father. That seems reasonable. And now they understand it wasn't like he was going to go home for a week. You go bury your father was going to be until he dies, I'm going to take care of his estate. And then when it's all settled and he's died and we've mourned, it could be a year. Jesus says, nah, you let dead people who are spiritually dead bury the physical dead and now you follow me. Now that was hard in a family-centered patriarchal society. He's telling them, hey, put me first. Now, listen, you know what repenting is? Repenting and following Jesus means I can't just have him in my life, part of my life, on the list of my life. Where does he have to be? The top of my life. Supreme in the affections of my heart. Way more than even my family. Right? He has to be above them all and whatever that looks like. 9-9. Nine, nine. Turn over there. Next one. Matthew, the... Disciple of Jesus, and by the way, he's never called by his name Matthew only by himself in his book. Otherwise, he's called Levi. 
And it says, as Jesus passed by, Matthew 9, 9, on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. You understand this, Matthew, he gets his name Levi because that's where he comes from, that tribe. He is of the priestly family. He would have been incredibly versed in the Old Testament. At the same time, he would have been incredibly shameful in an honor culture and embarrassing to his parents because he became low life to them in a way that you can't even begin to understand because he sided with the Romans and becomes a tax collector and he's gouging people for money and making living and helping the Romans do it. And that you couldn't get, other than prostitutes perhaps, you couldn't get worse than being a tax collector. So here he comes by, this guy's still sitting at the booth as he's working his job. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Here's what he's saying. Change your mind completely about life, about me, about what you're doing and what your life's really all about. Change it all. Repent of this whole thing. And come follow me. And he does. So you got guys, first example of people who Jesus, they say follow me. And he, they don't. And why? And you got Matthew, unlikely perhaps of most, but he does. The difference is between unrepentance and repentance. Next one, 1038. And I'm going to read a little bit earlier, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter, key phrase again, more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross, here's our, and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you understand what he's saying? You're not worthy of him. You're not worthy of him, his kingdom, being in his life, knowing him. You're not worthy. That's a, it's a very serious statement. And here's what he says. That's what it means to follow. You want to follow me, then you will make me worthy. You will make me above every relationship that you have in your life. And it won't even be questionable. Even the best ones, the closest ones, it's not that you can't have them, but they don't, hand, they don't hold a candle to who Jesus is in your life. And it should be obvious by the choices that you make. So we'd have to say this. You'd have to repent of your different values and priorities and relationships. You might have to repent of how much you value people over God. It's possible. 16.24 Then Jesus told his disciples, here they are, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself here it is. Take up his cross and underline it. Follow me. Well, what would follow mean? For, now I'm going to explain to you, here's what it would look like. For whoever would save his life would lose it. In contrast, but whoever loses his life, watch, for my sake, my sake will save it. What shall a man give? I mean, if it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? See, he's doing it's a balance. Here it is. Your value system is totally reversed. Ready? He's saying Jesus is the gain, the only true gain that you have, and everything else 
does not tip the scale compared to him. You would rather forfeit your life than lose him, not the other way around. Your whole value system about what really, really matters. I went to a dentist, and we sat in the living room, and Violet, and, and, and they're very emotional. It was, as you can, very traumatic. She was only in her 50s. It was, it was tragic. Son's still in high school. And you know what it makes me? I'm sitting here thinking this. How can I walk out of here not realizing what really matters most? Because when your loved one's dying, does it matter how big your house is? Did it matter what car I drove up to see them in? Did it matter how much money I had in the bank? No, not because none of that matters at all. But you leave a place like that and knowing you're, listen, I, Dennis was joking. He said to me, I went to a, few, uh, a viewing today, someone he knew from early on in teaching, 74, Dennis is 74, and, and this person passed away. And I said, Dennis, you may do my funeral. I don't know. But it makes me say this. You know what? I know what Jesus would say matters. He matters most. Oh, my wife and my children and this church and all of you matter to me greatly. But not in comparison to him. In fact, you matter to me to the degree you do because of him. And, and so let me tell you what Jesus says. Put your scales on the right level, right? Let the things balance out what should be as far as what really is gain, what really is loss. Paul would say, Philippians 3, but what were gain, things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but rubbish that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. You see what he's saying? That's my gain. It used to be in Paul's ledger that everything I was, my own righteousness, pharisaicalism, being a Hebrew, see it was all gain to me and Jesus was lost but when I became a disciple and I repented, guess what? My whole scale flip-flopped. And now all that stuff I thought was gain is lost, and all I thought was lost, Jesus, is now my greatest gain. And we have to constantly in our whole lives be repenting of the wrong value system constantly. And lastly, can I, 1921, last follow me statement, the rich young ruler in our Bible study, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect or complete, not sinless perfect, if you would be mature, if you would be complete, if you would be holy God, God's, go do this. Go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, there it is, follow me. You want to be my disciple, you have to repent of this. You can't treasure materialism and things and money too much. You've got to reverse your treasures. Not earthly treasures, but heavenly ones. Jesus already talked about this earlier in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for your treasures in heaven, right? That's, see what he's saying? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See the repentance? Jesus says, you know what? You are so in love with your money and all the things that come with it that you can't imagine having me as your treasure in its place. You know how I know? Because you can't follow me and you give up following me because you can't hold on to it. I'm telling you, sell all you got. He says, I can't. 
because he never had changed on the inside. There was no repentance, and so he couldn't even begin to thank discipleship. Why? Because his treasures were in the wrong place. So ask yourself tonight, I'm a disciple. I claim to be a follower of Jesus. Am I repenting regularly? If you didn't think you had much to repent of, maybe tonight and all the examples will give you a few ideas. Because if we're going to follow him and be like him, the change has to be from the inside out in so many ways and areas of our life daily. Daily. Because it's what Jesus is most serious about. So again, are we as serious as he was about what it means to follow him. Let's pray. Father, Jesus has laid it out for us, or through Matthew in his gospel, very clearly. He's put all the connectors and all the pieces together. May we have eyes to see tonight what is meant by Jesus' call to follow him, to be his disciple, what that looks like, what its basis is, and how it works its way in and out of our lives. Oh, Father, help us tonight. Help us examine our hearts. Help us to take deep stock and inventory and know the places in our lives, all of us, me included, that we need to repent, turn around, keep helping us, Lord, to change our minds about you and about living for you and what your kingdom's about every day that we might be your disciples. And we'll praise you for what you're pleased to do by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.